0: So before we begin, this is a podcast about terrorism, which does mean that we do talk about acts of terrorism and extreme violence. So you may find some of the following materials upsetting. Hello, I'm Fatma Ahmed, your host and guide in this series of Taking Apart Terror the West Africa edition. Together, we'll analyze the realities of violent extremism in West Africa and delve into the local, regional, and international efforts and initiatives to prevent and counter violent extremism. In today's episode, we'll be looking at who's tackling terror in Nigeria. And joining me to unpack this is Ahmed Jamari from Meme Foundation and Taneema Tahir, CSO leader, youth leader, and advisor on many topics concerning peace building. So let's get started. We've heard a lot in these different episodes about ISWAP and their presence in the broader Lake Chad Basin, but specifically around their presence in Nigeria. In this episode, we really want to unpack and deep dive who's tackling terror in Nigeria. Perhaps to start us off in the conversation, Ahmed, what is being done to counter ISWAP in Nigeria?
1: Thank you very much, Fatima. Starting with the policy end, uh, we've seen a lot of um, changes being made, especially at the federal level uh, to begin with, where the federal government uh, has actually been able to roll out a national roadmap uh, that they call the PCVE roadmap. Uh, This is a roadmap for preventing and countering violent extremism. In fact, Nigeria was one of the first African countries to have been able to roll out or even begin to think about what a framework for countering violent extremism would look like. So this roadmap was recently reviewed and these are some of the efforts that have been put in. In terms of the justice front, uh, we've seen also uh, the country now has a terrorism bill. Uh, There's a revised the terrorism bill um, that has been amended, uh, which also serves to strengthen uh, some of the justice mechanisms, especially as it relates to prosecuting uh, cases of terrorism. In terms of um, policy level, they have also been able to deploy a document called the NAC test. That's a national counterterrorism strategy. Now, this strategy essentially does something really impressive. What it does is it tells every single uh, agency of government, or at least the relevant agencies of government, on their specific rules as it relates to countering violent extremism.
0: Tanimu, for someone who works in civil society and, and also works as a peace builder, how do some of the PCVE programs actually impact the uh, in supporting the communities because we know that violent extremism has had an impact and a long lasting impact on communities so how can you expand on some of these pcb programs that are implemented
2: well there, there are quite a number of uh, programs actually implemented to see that yes pcb's are well mainstreamed in the communities and uh, the measurables in prevention strategies are in global south country mostly very difficult however you can see some quantum of social reorientation or improvement looking at it if you try to juxtapose from what has happened before and what is currently happening. In our own case here, the change in service tips brought in new ideas which reinforced the kinetic. That's the first component of of the security or defense uh, side of the government. And it has significantly improved things. And there is massive surrender of the insurgents. And what that tells you is not actually because the kinetic factor is there, but because there is a level of sensitization at the community level now for people to begin to speak and give relevant intelligence to security agencies as to how best these things can be become, information should be shared.
0: But coming back to some of these PCV programs, and you touched on quite a bit, But Ahmed, I wanted to come to you because I know um, Neem Foundation has been doing a lot of work around psychosocial support from healing and restoring to to supporting victims. Can you tell us a bit more about how how some of this psychosocial support is helping reverse some of the impact ISWAP have had in the community?
1: Uh, so what we're seeing is is quite um, staggering in terms of numbers of course uh, in the first instance when we went into communities in the northeast what we found was that a lot of people Actually, didn't even understand the concept of um, uh, psychological support. Um, in fact, to some extent, even lacked understanding of the needed psychological support or, or intervention, as some would call it. And so, what we had to do uh, in the first instance was to sensitize communities on the need uh, for those sort of services. We saw instances where a lot of communities, when you see a, a non-profit organization or development organization, uh, what you expect is to be provided with um, feeding, uh, to be provided with shelter, issues of water, sanitation, and hygiene. But then this was different in the sense that we came in and we said, really what we want to do is we want to talk to you about some of these mental health issues you're having. Uh, so we had to firstly break those barriers in terms of um, their understanding um, of the need to be to um, our counsellors also one of the things that we had to do was to also work through the community leaders to ensure that these um, communities understand that what we're actually trying to offer is equivalent of um, the health services you would do. i mean when when someone has a headache uh, you offer them panadol uh, so what we said is when you can't sleep um, when when you feel depressed uh, when you have thoughts running through your head uh, we also have medicine that we can offer. Uh, but this medicine is not the medicine that you understand. So these are some of the things we had to do. Uh, we saw a lot of incidents of um, women and girls that were sexually abused. We saw a lot of instances of uh, people that were that had post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, a lot of them uh, being children, of course, that have seen uh, their parents slaughtered. And also a lot of other issues that we found like a psychosomatic disorder where you have people that we complain about back aches, but really when uh, our psychologists and counselors interface with them you find that um, these issues were actually mental or physical um, so we saw a lot of shift in people's mindset and we saw a lot of positive changes in, the, in their contributions to the society at large and their willingness to even go out to engage uh, and even build livelihoods for themselves so these are some of the interesting things we've seen um, we've had the very gracious opportunity to work with over a to 5,000 victims um, over the duration of um, the the program we run in the Northeast through support of um, agencies such as UNICEF, uh, even the Bono State Government, uh, Ministry of Women Affairs, as well as other well-meaning organisations uh, that have been operating in the uh, North such as UNFPA, uh, UNDP, as well as um, the local civil society organisations there as well. So everyone uh, really came together to support these um, mental health services and um, provision.
0: When we talk about PCV programmings and a lot of these programmings are driven by you know a deep understanding of some of the drivers of violent extremism. So what are the tipping points? Why are people joining? And, you know, we've heard that there's a lot of emphasis on creating livelihood, creating opportunities, employment that will also ensure that those who are uh, lured or tempted to join, that there are other opportunities. And so I wanted to understand from both of your perspective, how does socioeconomic programming factor into the importance of preventing and countering violent extremism?
2: There are three fundamental factors, I think, that are the major drivers of this issue. One is the economic benefit, and two, issue of peer pressure, and three, perverted ideological view of Islam. But people have overblown that ideological one, which I don't think is more bigger or deeper than the economic advantage it promises to offer to the new recruits. So I think socio-economic package is fundamentally a very strategic way of addressing in terms of mainstreaming the PCV programs we are having in this part of the country. You could recall Recently, some months back, the United Nations Secretary General was here in Borno. A lot of things were discussed about the issue of deradicalization and also how there will be concurrent economic support. While they are talking about the kinetic factors from that angle, there should be economic package, while these ones that are already surrendered are now going to be rendered some psychosocial support, deradicalization and all that. And so far in the programming, there has been effective mainstreaming of economic packages which has proven to be effective. I can give you an instance now, if you like Gaza, for instance, or Mongono, where there is this issue of surrendering. You'll also understand that government has been in that access. So that is to tell you how this thing has been very effective. There is need for more improved efforts on seeing that, yes, this thing continues to give the impact it's given because it's definitely going to address the root cause. That economic package is of critical importance. Without the economic support, which is also named, And now that policymakers are understanding that there is need for this simultaneous package of giving the psychosocial support and economic support at the same time is proving to be the most effective way of countering this violent extremism. And I think it's a great thing.
0: Ahmed, do you want to add? Because, of course, your name also does a lot of work around this. Uh, Maybe you have additional points you want to build upon. Uh,
1: But in terms of the push factors that you look at, uh, you look at the Previously, in some of the states in the north, and not just, uh, of course, restricted to the northeast, you you can have the the lowest number of um, government schools. The the lowest um, resourcing for for provision of social amenities. But what's different now, and I think this is something that the world has seen really as a good example on how you can encourage defections. In this instance, is when you have governments that are willing to actually be in the forefront of the fight against this extremism, uh, even from the economic perspective. Sometimes we sit and talk about different complex solutions and strategies to addressing issues of extremism. But I'm confident, and I've spoken to a lot of people that believe that these sort of um, very concrete steps uh, to address the economic challenges of communities, not just restored confidence and governance um, across the Northeast, but also serve to push those on the fringe of leading groups such as ISOP to say, okay, look, if you do leave and defect, it means that the government can actually provide for us. So what we're seeing is that it has a two-multiple uh, benefit. It's now making communities more confident of government, but it has also to significant numbers of defections. I think the defections we've seen uh, in this short time, the largest number of defections by any extremist group uh, that has ever been seen in, in this region in quite a long time. What undoubtedly we're going to see in the next 12 months, twelve to 18 months is a significant reprioritization of Western funding as well as development funding into several areas or several emerging issues that are coming. So if we don't build those resilient systems, I think we will have a problem. But the good thing is what we are seeing on ground is that the governments, especially in the Northeast, are really coming alive to support uh, economically the communities that have been affected.
0: Actually, just to build on that, Ahmed, like because you talked about it, and like you know, we we have to also look at the global context that we're operating in. Uh, you know, the impact of COVID nineteen, but we also know another aspect, which is also the work that humanitarian and aid workers do. Um, a lot of them go to give you know immediate support to the communities, but we've seen that Daesh is what have you know previously issued warnings against these humanitarian and aid workers, you know, declaring that they're legitimate targets and that they see them as spies and uh, as Western agents. What impact on the community with uh, Daesh and ISWAP, you know, directly targeting these humanitarian aid workers who are trying to help the community? Well,
2: well, you see, to get this thing very right, I think we need to understand one thing about these guys, these criminals. And that thing is, At the heart, at the very core part of their principle of oppression is propaganda, to create some lies that sense, give a wrong signal of something, to misinform the public. The idea of this extremist to target this partners that are intervening in communities is because one, they know that what they are doing as intervention is definitely earning the attraction of the community members to them and by consequence to the government. And part of what they want to do is they want to show to communities, look, government has failed to do this and that. We are the ones who have the best system that can cover these issues. So at the time they are trying to convince the people that they are the ones capable of doing something and somebody through facilitation of the government is now coming to give them part of those things that they claim they will offer they will definitely want to find a way of stopping that and it's a common logic that the only thing they believe in which is that's why they are violent extremists is to go with the violent way they issue those threats And at the slightest chance of it, they executed. Execution of that trade, if you look at it, they normally in most cases do it openly. Openly to create another propaganda of widespread fear that, look, we mean business and we mean it and we are doing it and we will continue to do it. So, the next thing is the community will have no option than to fall at the mercy of these terrorists. So, as a strategy, they make money out of the whole transaction of seeing that they abduct these uh, this aid workers. On the other hand, they are creating fear to not only the communities, also, but even to the aid workers. They develop cold feet in terms of intervening in those areas because they feel it's not safe. And anything you do, for safety is the first consideration. So, if you look at it, those things are of great effect, are of great impact to what is happening. They are doing this thing deliberately they understand because they know for instance there is this life-saving information interventions like for instance the united nation population fund or maybe for instance what the NIM foundation is doing in terms of psychosocial support to to these victims they know that this thing is going to bring them they are going to bounce back better with this support and when they bounce back better they will know who exactly their enemies are which are the terrorists. And these are opportunities, they want to make sure they delink the community members from each.
0: You know, what strikes me is, uh, you've said a lot of things, but one of the things that you, you and Ahmed both emphasize is this evolution, that things are better, people are leaving, uh, people are seeing uh, these violent extremist groups for who they are. So my question to you, as we wrap up the conversation is, one, what are the challenges that you face as organizations because there must be still some challenges that exist at the moment and the second is is that what is your reflections and learnings going forward so those two thoughts would be really helpful to hear
1: whenever boko haram or Iswap, in this instance expresses communities that they have a problem with an entity then that entity is doing something right. There was an instance where we've uh, seen a lot of threats uh, to media houses. It means that there's something that they are saying that is threatening actual. Uh, we've seen instances in the past, I think, six months where they've gone into communities uh, primarily in Borno and Yobi and handed out letters to talk to people about um, really not to support uh, government, not to support non-profit organizations. It means that these agencies are doing something right. These are the areas that we need to start looking at. We need to start looking at areas that make Iswap feel a bit uneasy. Uh, in terms of challenges in our own work, uh, not just in the Northeast, but in the Northwest. uh, We've seen uh, affiliates of ours being uh, kidnapped um, while on the job. Uh, We've seen uh, instances where staff members uh, were put in harm's way because, of course, the constantly changing security environment in the region, as well as also a dwindling resource uh, challenge, which started obviously from COVID-19, but now we're also seeing another global uh, shift since the the, the war in uh, Ukraine started uh, where a lot of the countries are now reprioritizing funding into other uh, areas uh, domestic as well as also to tackle the issues uh, and challenges happening elsewhere. My own advice is, We need to begin to have a more integrated approach. We've seen instances where civil society will have uh, operations in the field that is not really uh, connected to what the development community are doing. This needs to be more strengthened. We've seen efforts being put in by state government that is not really coordinated with federal government, and this needs to be strengthened as well. Um, Finally, just in terms of one of the areas we we feel needs to be addressed, uh, particularly education, is one. One of the biggest challenges we've seen could lead to further radicalization of people. We need to start building schools. Uh, this is being done, of course, by states like Bono State and Yobi, Adama as well. Uh, we need to start training and recruiting teachers. We need to also roll out curriculums that are resilient or that build resilience of people that could be vulnerable to violent extremism. For the listeners of this podcast, have this number in your head. In the Northeast. Between 2009 and 2020, nothing less than 2,200 teachers were killed in Burno, Adama and Yubi, as a direct result of the insurgency.
0: Thank you so much, Ahmed. Very succinct and really uh, lots to take away for those listening. Tanimu, what about yourself?
2: Regarding the issues of challenges we have as a local organisations operating in this theatre of war, there is always difficulty of funding, but with the global economic shock as a result of the pandemic, that funding issue has become more and more bigger. There is also now with the coming of the uh, Ukraine-Russia crisis, this is beyond just economic shock, but even food security shock, which is the most dangerous form of insecurity. Food insecurity is is very, very critical. And if you look at this, there's definitely prioritization by donor agencies, by countries, by organizations as to where and how now they would begin to sink resources and all that. So definitely this is affecting the local organizations here. doubt about it. But one thing can easily be caught even at the local level, which is important, is the issue of protecting the lives of people working in these dangerous communities. The threats made by the ISWAP are not just empty threats. They are threats that they execute at every slightest opportunity they get to have. Sometimes back recently when they raided a town neighboring Niger Republic, Gaidam, when they went into the town, they were looking after people who are associated with government, teachers, civil servants, and all this, not just security personnel, is a way of sending message to the community that any attachment with this establishment means death. So they will create that fear. But that's not just creating fear. They are executing it. There are people that are taking the brunt. Largely, community workers, development partners that are directly intervening in these communities becomes the victim. As we can see, they claim credit of abduction, of killings, of attacks on facilities, on on personnel of development organizations. And that is a very worrying situation. So the need for us to look at how we can, at a local way, explore the need to have effective security of lives and properties of these people is very important. So that it will embolden not only them who are intervening, but it will also send a message, send to the communities that look, we are providing countermeasures to address these things they are talking about. Thank you.
0: Mm. So that's it for today's episode. But thank you both uh, Tanimo and Ahmed for helping us, guide us through these discussions, Mm -hmm. giving us these insights and sharing your first-hand experiences of um, how to tackle terror in Nigeria and also the credible work that's been done by you as individuals but also your organizations. That's it for today's episode. But have a listen to other episodes in the series as we unpack the realities of ISBOP.
2: I'm Fatma Ahmed, your host.